Hello, and welcome to A History of Japan. Season 7, Episode 19, Selections from the Taiheiki, Bonus Episode. Unfortunately, I have to begin this bonus episode with an apology and a correction. The Taiheiki does not tell the story of the Mongol invasions, but is instead a story of the final years of the Kamakura Shogunate, its defeat in the Genko War, and the events that follow the restoration of imperial rule. I am very sorry for the error, I really have no idea why I thought the Mongol invasions were included in the Taiheiki. This version of the Taiheiki was translated into English by Helen Craig McCullough. I have mildly edited these selections for simplicity and clarity, removing references to figures and events from Chinese history which would require further elaboration. Although this work was originally published in 1959, it is still in print, so if you like what you hear, order a copy of the full translation for yourself. Written in the late 1400s long after these events transpired, the style of the Taiheiki is very dramatized. Accuracy should not be assumed, nor should its characterizations of historical figures be taken at face value. Still, I think it is important to understand how the events of the Genko War were perceived by those who came after, and to see the seeds being sown for the early conflicts of the Muromachi period. In the text, the Kamakura Bakufu are referred to as the Eastern Barbarians. This anachronistic slur was likely used at the time by partisans of Emperor Go-Daigo, who wanted to smear the shogunate as uncouth interlopers infringing on the right of the imperial dynasty to rule the nation. While they were from the east, the Hojo clan and their adherents were Yamato Japanese, just like their western counterparts, not Amishi. The Hojo name itself is usually rendered as Taira, which was their official court name, so Hojo Takatoki is called Taira no Takatoki. We will start at the beginning, as the author set the stage for the conflict which would soon erupt. Classical themes like the Chinese concept of the Mandate of Heaven are on full display. In the reign of the Emperor Go-Daigo, there lived a warrior known to men as Taira no Takatoki, the governor of Sagami. Takatoki turned away his face from the virtue of the emperor, holding his subject's duty as nothing. Wherefore has it come to pass that since his time the four seas are disordered utterly, and no man's heart is easy within him? For more than forty years have beacon fires veiled the skies, and warring shouts made the earth to tremble. No man amasses springs and autumns in rich abundance, nor is there a haven to shelter the myriad folk. Rightly considered, these things are not the fruit of a day or night. For in the years of Genryaku, Lord Yoritomo, the Kamakura Grand Marshal of the Right, achieved merit by chastising the house of Taira. And Go Shirakawa-in rejoiced greatly thereat, appointing Yoritomo to be the constable general of the 66 provinces. Then for the first time the military named protectors in the provinces and established stewards in the estates. Later Yoritomo's eldest and second sons were made barbarian subduing shoguns after him, each in his turn. Yoriye was the chief of the left gate guards, and Lord Sanetomo the great subject of the right. 
Wherefore, indeed, do men call these three generations of shogun? Yet, because Lord Yorie was struck down by Sanetomo, and Sanetomo by Yorie's son, the evil meditation teacher Kugyo, therefore did father and sons together endure but forty-two years. The power in the realm passed to Yoshitoki, the former governor of Mutsu, a son of Lord Yoritomo's father-in-law, Taira no Tokimasa, the governor of Totomi. And Yoshitoki sought to rule over all the four seas. Now, Go-Toba-in, the retired emperor of the day, was moved to strike down Yoshitoki, for it was hateful to his heart that the government of the court was set aside by the power of the military. And thereupon the disturbance of Jokyu began, utterly disordering the realm. But when at last the two hosts contended together at Uji and Seta, with banners dimming the sun, then quickly the imperial armies fled away defeated before a day of fighting was ended. Gotoba-in was sent away to exile in the land of Oki, and Yoshitoki held the realm in his hand. For six generations, the government issued from this family of the Hojo that ministered to the needs of the distressed folk. Yasutoki, the governor of Musashi, Tokiuji, the assistant chief of the palace construction office, Tsunetoki, the governor of Musashi, Tokiyori, the governor of Sagami, Tokimune, the acting chief of the stables of the left, and Satatoki, the governor of Sagami. But although their power extended over all men, yet were they content to receive the fourth court rank. They lived modestly, dispensed benevolence, castigated their own faults, and observed the proprieties. Though highly placed, they were not dangerous. Though the cup of their power was full, it did not overflow. It is the way of the morning sun that, without evil intent, it robs the lingering stars of their radiance. Even so was it in the estates of the land, where stewards grew strong and landholders grew weak, although the military in no wise sought to dishonor the court. Likewise, in the provinces the protectors were respected, but the governors were held lightly. Year by year the court declined, day by day the military flourished. The generations of emperors thought always, would that the eastern barbarians might be struck down, for it was in their hearts to comfort the spirit of the imperial exile of Zhou Qiu. Likewise, they sorrowed to think upon the court's power, how it wasted and became as nothing. Yet they abode in silence, troubled that the design was beyond their compass or the time was not fitting. But then came the day of the lay monk Taira no Takatoki Sokan, the former governor of Sagami, a descendant of Tokimasa in the ninth generation. Then indeed was change close at hand in the mandate of heaven and earth. The deeds that Takatoki did were exceedingly base, and he was unashamed before the scorn of others. Without righteousness did he govern, not heeding the people's despair. By day and by night, with wanton acts he dishonored his glorious ancestors under the ground. In the morning and in the evening, with vain merriment, he invited ruin in his lifetime. Those who saw knit their eyebrows, and those who heard uttered condemnations. The emperor of that time who came forth from the womb of Datemmon-in was Godaigo, 
the second princely son of Go-Uda-in, set upon the throne in his 31st year by design of the governor of Sagami. In his reign, this emperor obeyed the way of the Duke of Zhou and of Confucius, properly observing the three relationships and five virtues. Nor was he neglectful of the myriad affairs and hundred offices of his government, but followed the uses of Engi and Tenryaku. Hopefully, the four seas gazed upon his aspect. With joyful hearts, the myriad folk bowed before his virtue. In truth, he revived forgotten things and rewarded all that was good, so that shrines and temples flourished, and Zen and Ritsu, the fulfillment, blessed the great teachers of the revealed and secret ways of Buddhism and the truths of Confucius. There was no man but praised his virtue and exulted in his goodness, saying, Surely, this is a heaven-endowed emperor, an earth-ruling sovereign. In Book 3, the emperor has a dream that leads him to Kusunoki Masashige, the man who would become a loyalist hero of the Genko War. He sends a messenger to Masashige in hopes of recruiting him for his resistance against the shogunate. When the imperial messenger came to Kusunoki's abiding place to speak concerning his commission, in his heart Masashige thought, there can be no greater honor for a man of bow and arrow. Quickly he went forth in secret to Kasagi, not thinking about advantages or disadvantages. The Supreme Highness spoke to Masashige through the mouth of Lord Fujifusa, the Madenonkoji Middle Counselor, saying, Thinking to rely upon you to subdue the eastern barbarians, we sent forth our imperial messenger. We rejoice exceedingly that you have hastened to come here. What is your plan for swiftly winning a victory and pacifying the four seas, that the realm may be returned to our hands? Speak freely all that is in your mind. Respectfully, Masashige said, Of late, by their crimes, the eastern barbarians have invited the censure of heaven. Wherefore, then, shall we not profit from their weakness to destroy them on heaven's behalf? Yet, to control the realm, we require not men of war alone, but clever devisings as well. Not by opposing strength against strength will we triumph. Not though we assemble together the warriors of more than sixty provinces to contest against the men of Musashi and Sagami alone. But if we fight with a plan, there will be nothing to fear, since the guileless eastern barbarians can do nothing beyond smashing what is sharp and destroying what is strong. Since the way of warfare is as it is, let not the sovereign look at the outcome of a single battle. While he hears that Masashige alone still lives, let him believe that he will prevail at last. So he spoke firmly and went home to Kawachi. There follows a dramatic account of the siege of Akasaka Fortress and the withdrawal of Kusunoki Masashige and Prince Moriyoshi. In our next section, from Book 6, Kusunoki Masashige is about to re-emerge as a leader of the rebellion against Kamakura. Note how even these latter-day authors understood that one of Masashige's greatest weapons was confusion. Now in the first year of Genko, the military were deceived by Kusunoki Masashige when fleeing away he feigned to have died in the fire at Akasaka Castle. 
they sent forth Yuasa Magoro to be the steward of the place, he who was called the lay monk Joobutsu, thinking with easy hearts, there is nothing more to fear in the province of Kawachi. Yet suddenly, Kusunoki rode furiously against Yuasa's castle with 500 horsemen on the third day of the fourth month of the second year. May it not be that little food was laid up in the castle? For it came to Kusunoki's ears that five or six hundred commoners would approach by night bearing stores from Yuasa's lands to Asegawa in the province of Ki. And thereupon he sent forth warriors to an advantageous place on the road, who took away all those stores and put arms into the straw bags in their stead. Kusunoki loaded some of the bags onto horses and gave others to commoners to carry, and he named two or three hundred warriors to put on the semblance of guards, in order that they might enter into the castle. Then his force gave battle against these their comrades, chasing them back as though to scatter them, so that the Yuasale monk thought, the warriors bringing our stores are fighting against Kusunoki's men, and unwittingly the lay monk emerged from the castle to lead the enemy warriors in. When Kusunoki's men were come inside the castle according to their plan, they drew forth weapons from the bags, gathered together in one place, and raised a battle shout, while at the same time the warriors outside broke down the gates and climbed over the walls, and the Yuasale monk, now pressed irresistibly by enemies within and without, quickly stretched out his neck in surrender. After Kusunoki had taken that lay monk's warriors for himself, with 700 horsemen he subdued the two provinces of Izumi and Kawachi, and his army waxed exceedingly strong. On the seventeenth day of the fifth month, he went forth toward Sumiyoshi and the Tennoji Temple, encamping southward from Watanabe Bridge. Now a great clamor arose in the capital, where many fast messengers from Izumi and Kawachi reported that Kusunoki thought to advance against the city. Warriors galloped away to the east and west, and noble and base alike were sorely agitated. Like clouds or mist, the hosts of the home provinces and neighboring places galloped together to wait at Rokuhara, thinking, Kusunoki will attack now. Yet, it was not so. Our last selection follows Ashikaga Takauji, who appears resentful of his rough treatment at the hands of the Bakufu. Just before this selection, the Bakufu are sending their vassals to the capital. The Sagami lay monk in this passage is Hojo Takatoki. Among these vassals called to go up to the capital was Ashikaga Takauji, who had been afflicted of a disease so that his body was yet infirm. But, notwithstanding, they summoned him again and again. Lord Ashikaga was angered in his heart because of this thing, thinking, Not for the space of three months have I mourned my father's death, nor yet are my grievous tears dried. Moreover, a disease smites my body, such as will not let me rest from suffering. How distasteful it is that they summon me to a war of chastisement. It is said that the great are brought down with the passing of time, and the lowly are exalted. Yet Takatoki is but a descendant of Hojo Tokimasa, whose clan long ago came down among the commoners, while I am the generations of the house of Genji, which left the imperial family not long since. Surely it is meet 
that Takatoki should be my vassal instead of contemptuously handing down orders such as these. If he requires this thing of me another time, I shall take all my kinsmen toward the capital, and I shall join myself to the cause of the former sovereign, and by attacking and destroying Rokuhara, I may decide the fate of my family. So he thought, while no man knew aught thereof. Not dreaming of such a thing, the Sagami lay monk twice in one day sent a messenger, Kudo Saimon no Jo, to urge Takauji, saying, Why is it that you delay to go to the capital? Lord Ashikaga in no wise turned away his face from Kudo, but answered him, saying, I shall go up very soon, for in his heart he was resolved to rebel. And joining night today, he made ready to depart. We already know what happened next. Ashikaga Takauji betrayed the shogunate by destroying the Rokuhara Tandai, and the rest is history. If you would like to read the full English translation, the Helen Craig McCullough translation of the Taiheiki is available via your favorite bookselling platform. Next week, the first of three Patreon-exclusive bonus episodes will be available. This episode will focus on the arms, armor, and tactics of the Mongol Empire and review one of their most catastrophic defeats. If you haven't subscribed to the Patreon yet, you can do so by visiting patreon.com slash ahistoryofjapan. The next season, the early Muromachi period, will begin on August 29th. Until then, thank you for listening. If you would like access to exclusive bonus episodes, as well as ad-free versions of the regular episodes, please consider supporting this podcast at patreon.com slash ahistoryofjapan. 